captivating landscapes, flawless tobaccos, elegant presentation. Introducing Pure Origin. At JR Cigar, our innovative team is on a journey for unrivaled flavors and enriching experiences. Along that path, we discovered new, distinctive, and groundbreaking tobaccos from the furthest reaches of the earth and are bringing them right to your home. The intentions are pure, the process is pure, the origin is pure. JR Pure Origin. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Friday night, Friday night herf, as we do on the dojo every single Friday for Jordan. This is episode 380. Take two. Uh, smoke Night Live. <laughs> yeah, we're going to call this 380 uh, B. Uh, 380 of Smoke Night Live. We'll be chatting with Marvin Samuel tonight, the writer, director, producer of the movie I Mordecai. I know some of you guys did your homework I was paying attention today, Jordan, on the Dojoverse, and I'd ask guys, hey, go watch the movie before Friday's show, because we're going to be talking about it all all, all night on the Dojo, so uh, some of the guys definitely did that. That's cool. Um, Scotty, Matt, our studio audience hanging out there. How are you boys tonight? Ah, doing great. Doing great. I wish summer would actually show up in Colorado. You know, I'm kind of getting tired of this 70 degree weather and raining every day. It might just rain the next for every day for the rest of our lives. I don't know if it will ever, ever be sunny. On a good note, I haven't turned on my sprinklers yet. So there's that. I think I think, Scotty, that's a good point. I think that I'm about to set my personal best record for delaying the start of my sprinklers. (laughs) Don't you love when when you talk to people and they're still like, well, we need the rain. No, yeah, no, no, we don't. No, we don't. Jordan, I uh, am smoking tonight, and we're going to talk about this more later when we bring our guest on. But I'm smoking this Ooh. uber old Ooh. UF13. Let me see if I can get this for folks. On the, gotta cover your face. On the, uh, it's, oh, Even there setting like ten feet away from you, Eric, I can see can just see? how dark that is. Look at that. It's oozing through the band. It's it just the band. soaked through. Guys, the exciting news is two weeks from today, we will be uh, releasing our next Cigar Dojo collaborative cigar. And this time, it's with Omar and Fratello. And so here's what happened. Omar wanted to do a cigar. He's in the in the aerospace. He used to be in the aerospace industry with NASA. And so it just so happens that Jordan's grandfather, my dad, before there was AutoCAD, before there was... AI and all this computer-aided 3D graphics stuff that guys use today, when NASA wanted to, to visualize an upcoming spaceship, they would come to my dad and they'd say, can you draw uh, a spaceship that looks sort of like this? This is how we're going to use it. It's going to land on the moon or whatever it's going to do. And my dad was the main illustrator for NASA. I actually worked for a company called Martin Marietta, which was a contractor for NASA. So I said, this is a perfect way you got omar in the whole nasa industry you've got uh some some theme from us from our family heritage so we incorporated nobody expected that we would have a nasa connection yeah right especially we do do. and so uh the the new cigar is called afterburner and some of the drawing actually all of those drawings that are sort of featured on the box there 
are drawings from the late 19, uh, late, late 1950s, 1960s, maybe some from the very, very early 1970s. And the cigar is called Afterburner. It's going to be a week or two weeks, I'm sorry, from today. Uh, we're super excited about this one. Uh, Jordan, this one's going to be there fun. Is. There he is. Look at him. That's They'd come to him and they'd say, hey, draw Grandpa. draw us this thing. And look at that shirt, by the way. That's I wish I had that shirt. I wished I had that. He's wearing it, he's, <laughs> he's wearing it with like plaid pants or something. Like, oh, man. Oh, my gosh. So I'm, mid-century. I miss, I miss him. I miss him. He's the best guy in the world. Uh, but anyways, that's going to be fun. By the way, um, I will have a special deal for Dojo members where you guys can get 10% off plus free shipping um, on that product. There's only 300 boxes available, so they're probably going to go super fast. So if you want to get your hands on one of those, um, you're going to have to be ready two weeks from uh, today. It'll go on sale, Jordan, noon Eastern time at Atlantic Cigars. It's going to be a ton of fun. So Got please. Highly aged tobacco in the filler. Too. Yeah. Talk about that, Jordan, with Omar. And uh, yeah, he had this uh, just this single bale that had been aging around for a long time. And uh, so we. They didn't have enough to do anything. Enough to do regular production, so let's put it to use here. So we got a Dominican filler, made it of that new uh, tobacco layer, La Isla factory uh, hostess for uh, Quesada, nephew of uh, Manuel Quesada. He's got his own factory now. It's kind of like uh, all the rage in the boutique scene. So that's where the cigars are being rolled. Absolutely. All right, folks, let's get right into our show tonight. Um, let's bring on our guest, uh, Marvin Samuel. Marvin, welcome, my friend, to Smoke Night Live. Hey, Eric. Hey, Jordan. How are you guys? We're doing good, brother. Excited to have you on the show. Uh, I can't wait to get into uh, talking about the movie. Uh, I watched it last night with my wife and my daughter. We had a great time. Super good. Uh, but before we get there, let's let's ease our way into this. Now, Marvin, you have a rich history in the premium cigar uh culture, industry, the history, the lore, everything. You have a permanent place because you are a co-founder of Drew Estate. So talk a little bit about um, getting from, let's just, let's just rewind and talk a little bit about uh, your, your cigar journey. And then we'll get, we'll dive right into the movie. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, uh, I started Drew Estate with my fraternity brother, JD, we both went to school together in uh, upstate New York, and we opened a kiosk in the World Trade Center Mall. Uh, leases were signed in late 95, but officially established uh, Super Bowl Sunday of January of 1996, and we were selling everybody else's cigars. Uh, I remember one of the first people I ever met, uh, we took a ride to Cayocho and had coffee with the godfather himself, Ernesto Perez Cadillo, and spent a day with him. And that was like my first week in the cigar industry in early 96. Ernesto, and he had a, he had a place like Caddy Corner from El Titan de Bronze, correct? Like it was correct. just right, yep. yeah. It was right across the street. I mean, look, back then there were probably 40 Fabriquitas over there. You know, wow. and uh, it was it was a very different world, you know, sure. before the rents before the rents went up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, so we were selling other people's other brands and we started a we started a house brand called La Vieja Habana. 
It was rolled on 28th and 6th Avenue um, uh, by a man named uh, Antonio Almanzar and uh, La Rosa Cigars. And we started like just selling it in our little booth. I mean, our booth was the size of my chair. It was like five by five, but it was in between, right by the ACE lines of the old trade center. So we had real traffic Um, and we started selling. And the next thing you know, like within a few weeks, other stores, like people would take the La Vieja Banas with them on their rides back to Long Island and Westchester and Jersey. And now stores are calling us. And like we had this little cubby hole with uh, John's mom, Esther, had an antique phone she gave us. And there was a tiny little cubby hole. We would open it up and we'd you know, open up QC Cigars. Hey, I'd love those La Vieja Habanas. So now we're wholesaling. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. <laughs> so we just, you know. It was literally, and, and what's funny is we didn't realize it at first. We were both kids. I was 23, he was 24. Um, and we didn't like understand the concept of the value chain that when you're wholesaling, you need to make room for that. So we were like Lucy and Ethel in I Love Lucy selling canned tomato soup, <laughs> a canned tomato sauce, but they were losing money on every, we were losing money on every single cigar we sold. Anyways, fa- that was, listen, our humble beginnings, humble beginnings. Yeah. Um, so then we started like it just started getting crazy where like dozens and dozens of shops and then hundreds of shops just wanted it from us and i remember one day going there and saying yeah we need like uh 500 and they were like all right 500 cigars will have them to you by tuesday we're like no no no, we need 500 boxes and there was this little guy a dominican roller what was his name? Oh my God. Um, and he was a merengue champion. And he, four foot eight, jumped onto the top of his rolling table, looking down at us and goes, no mas, I quit. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and it's there, it's from there we realized like we need a real manufacturer. And uh, we started having our, our La Vieja Habana cigars rolled by Nick Perdomo. And this was 1990, late 96, early 97-ish. And uh, we had our brand, La Vieja Habana, rolled at the Perdomo Cigar Factory. And we went to the 1998 freight show. It was in uh, New Orleans, uh, not New Orleans, um, in Nashville, Tennessee. And we killed it. I mean, for a small little unknown company, we knocked it out of the park. But we didn't have the money for the cigars. And I remember we're at the, uh, we're at the uh, Arch Diner in Brooklyn, and my parents are with John and I, and uh, my dad looks at us and goes, boys, what's going on over here? Why the long face? <laughs> my dad's from the old country, you know, he's he, with the accent. And I can't even talk. And John's like, we have all these orders. We just don't have the money. And my dad looks at my mom. She shakes her head and he goes, all right, I just paid off the house after 30 years. You want it? Take what you need. Go follow your dreams. And he turns to me and goes, you fuck it up. I kill you. <laughs> <laughs> okay? No pressure. 
<laughs> no pressure. Nice peps. Nice pep talk from my dad. So now we have our deposit money. We put our deposit down with Perdomo Cigars. And six weeks later, Hurricane Mitch ravages Esteli. I mean, thousands of people died. Mm, geez. And yeah, look it up. It was a terrible hurricane. And the factory was closed. All factories were closed. And we're just sitting. And we had built up like an entire company. We had reps. And, and I, at that time, I said to my reps, look, we're waiting for our cigars. I, we can't afford to pay you right now. We were all a bunch of young kids. If you want, I got a two-bedroom rent-stabilized apartment on the Upper West Side. Move in with me. I had six guys living with me. Wow. And I can't tell you how, for years, for like two years, three years, I had like, it was like an open revolving door, sleeping bags, <laughs> you know, ramen noodles, like, <laughs> and we're going month after month with no cigars, nothing to sell. And we're basically out of business. And at that point, finally, we started getting cigars in like February of twenty. Uh, of 20 of 1999 so now john's in nicaragua i'm in the states and i'm starting to call people i'm like hey uh yeah i remember the, one of the first people i ever spoke to about this uh we still left about it to this day hey gary pesh from old virginia cigars um remember those la vieja banas you ordered nine months ago well they're ready and he's like kid i don't think you understand the cigar boom is over. I'm up to my eyeballs in, in product. So what happened is from the early 90s, 92, 93, before I even got in the business, as the boom started hitting, there was a cat and mouse game between manufacturer and retail. And what happened was, you, let's say you needed 50 boxes of cigars, 10 boxes of cigars from a particular manufacturer. You would order 50 just to get your allotment of your 10. And you would adjust every year. You'd go to the trade show. It was called the uh, RTDA show at the time. And you'd go to the trade show. And the next thing you know, 1999 hits. And the boom ended in a week. In one week from the time. So at the trade show in 1998, everyone did this cat and mouse games. And within a few months, Everyone was getting their full allotment. Supply had not just caught up, had surpassed demand. So here I am sitting with shipments of La Viabanas and no one wants our cigars. So we started thinking about what is it that we can do, you know, and out of, you know, that, you know, that's where Acid Cigars was born. Try to something new to shake things Try up. Try something different. So, acid cigars, I don't know the numbers these days, I have my sources, but it's either number one or number two largest premium cigar brands in the world today. Right. From that. And after that, we were off to the races, you know, from acid to natural. Um, and then uh, we launched Liga Pravada. Uh, so, Liga Pravada wasn't launched with the concept of being a big brand it was just you know we wanted a cigar 
that our friends or even our competitors, you know, what, you guys at home, I don't know if you know this, and things did change a lot with all the legislative bullshit, unfortunately, where friends ended up turning against each other. But back then, it was such a great time. I have a picture on my wall. Ah, you know what? I, sh I should have sent it to you guys. I have a picture on my wall. It's from 2007. Congressman Kendrick Meeks is running for Congress, and we wake up to find out that there's an S-chip tax, an excise tax, that they wanted to change from $0.05 cents to $10, a cigar. And suddenly the cigar industry, premium cigar industry, woke up to the world of the government and government right. overreach. And we had an event at Padrones, and we all got together, and we have this picture that is hanging in my wall, my office to this day, and it's everyone in the industry. It's like that famous picture from uh, the late 50s of all the jazz legends in Harlem. <laughs> everyone in the industry is in there. It's like the Last Supper. And, <laughs> uh, you could say that in a way because, you know, that I, when I look at that picture, I think of the times where my closest friends were my competitors and call me naive or call me, you know, um, you know, just, I just said, you know what, throughout my entire career, I didn't look at my competitors as my competitors. This is a crazy business being a cigar maker. How many people could understand the types of challenges you're going through building your business than other manufacturers? You know, retailers, some of them get it to a degree and to a large degree, but mostly it's, it's, it's a very isolated business from a standpoint of the feeling you get the ups, the downs, you know, okay, now we have blue mold mold. Okay. Now, the wood there's no wood in nicaragua okay um we had an amazing crop of connecticut you know all of these highs and lows were shared by all of my friends and my competitors um but i didn't have a cigar at the time that they we didn't have a cigar that i that they respected and our to, to me at least one of the main goals was to have a cigar that when we're trading blends you have something that you can be proud of um, from a standpoint of a premium traditional cigar. And from that concept is where we made up, I think our first batch was a thousand cigars, 20 bundles. And from there, La Vieja Habana was born. And, you know, I don't know where it is today, uh, you know, in terms of size. But it's becoming one of the larger brands in the world. Now, you're talking about Liga Pravada, right? Liga, yeah. What I, yeah. Did I say La Viebana? Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, um, sorry. Liga Pravada. Apologies. No, no, so no that's So that's basically, and then, you know, um, unfortunately, the government encroachment just kept coming and coming and coming. I took it upon myself. I not only joined Cigar Rights of America, I became the chair, the secretary of the board. Um, we had a bill that was introduced in Congress to define what is a premium cigar and then try and take back regulations from, you know, from the FDA that had taken over. And we had like 
we had to get to a number of co-sponsors. And I was told we get to a majority of co-sponsors in Congress, then we have a good chance of getting a bill passed. And I said, how many do we have? We have 15 now. And we had to get by July, before they went for summer recess, we had to get to like a majority, which is 218. And I moved to, to Washington with my wife and basically walked the halls of Congress. I had a house right off Capitol Hill. And we had members of Republicans and Democrats would come to my house, smoke cigars in the backyard. Deals are being made. It was crazy. <laughs> and we, we actually got to a majority of co-sponsors. I, I, I literally just, we were getting like nine, 10 a day. And I, how, so, sometimes like you, you got to realize these are people too. Right. And if you take all of your ideologies out and you just have a conversation, I can't tell you how many times me telling the story of the plumber and the painter, which is in my movie, which is in my film, right. I'm Mordecai, right. led to a co-sponsor looking at me and saying, you know what? You're all right. I'll sponsor your bill. Wow. So, yeah, learning how the sausage was made was pretty crazy. Now, so, if you guys are really paying attention, you'll see that Marvin is smoking a uh, Espinosa Laranja there. That's one of my mm -hmm. all-time... All-time favorite cigars by Eric. Yeah. Uh, me and yeah. Eric are good Eric, buddies. I know you are as well. Absolutely. Um, Eric worked for Drew Estate. And uh, when I moved to Florida in 2004, I would spend at least a week a month just riding. I, I wanted to understand the market from a standpoint of not just doing an event and then going home, but I wanted to like go and understand the life of the, 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 the rep, which I don't know if people really, if you guys understand the life of the cigar rep, it's a pretty crazy world. But um, I spent so much time with Eric on the road and we'd make each other laugh. We, we'd talk about, share our dreams. And even back then he's like, yeah, I'm going to open up a cigar factory. This is not my, you know, end all and be all of, where I'm going to end up in the cigar industry. And you know what? The fucking guy did it, put his yeah. balls on the line, and he ain't no spring chicken, right, Eric? <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. He ain't no spring chicken. And to do that when you got a wife, you got a kid, you got yeah. a whole family you're supporting, you know, it's one thing to do it when you're 24. You know, what the hell, other than my parents' house, what the hell did I have to lose? <laughs> um, but when you do it, when you reach a certain age, and, you know, to start a new adventure like he did, I'm so proud of the man. Yeah, he's and, a great uh, guy. Yeah. 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 Now let's fast so, forward. Let's fast forward a well, bit uh, to. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So what happened was the, the regulatory pressures just got too much. And we ended up with an offer where Swisher was interested in purchasing our company. This is back in 2014. I wasn't 100% sure at the time. But they were in better position to handle all of this. Right. You know, we were getting too too big for ourselves. And in July of 2014, my wife was pregnant. We go to get our uh, our uh, weekly sonogram. The the doctor goes, "Oh, we have two heartbeats." And I'm like, "What the hell are you talking about? My kids got two hearts." <laughs> 
And Net, Net, Netta looks at me and she looks up. She goes, no, idiot. We're having twins. And my mouth just dropped. Oh. Yeah. That, that was the moment where I realized I've got two people in my wife's belly, that two little souls that I have to now be responsible for. And uh, yeah, we sold the company in October or November of that year. And my girls were born in 2015, March of 2015. And it should have been, you know, the culmination of, at this point, 20 years of my life. No longer a child, you know, a kid. I'm, I'm 45 years old now. I have children. And it should have been the happiest time of our lives. And my, my six weeks after Talia and Ariella, my twin daughters, were born, my mother fell asamble, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And uh, guys, it fucking destroyed me. Because what's the point? You work, you work your ass off for 20 years. You want to enjoy these, this time with your family. All my mother wanted, she's a simple woman, Holocaust survivor, you know, came to every single trade show, you know, would sit there and tell stories to all the retailers and, you know, and other manufacturers. And now I'm, I've learned that my mother's, uh, my mother's got Alzheimer's and I didn't know what to do. I went into a depression, a deep, dark place. And, uh, to cope, I started writing down stories that I would tell hosting cigar events around the country, around the world. And when I took a step back, I realized after six weeks of writing, man, there's something cinematic about these characters. Right. And I'll stop there. So you just got my whole Drew Estate journey. <laughs> and I'll stop there and you can take over. All Act right. two. Act two. Yeah. <laughs> let's, mm-hmm. uh, let's jump into the – let's do our commercial, Jordan, and then we'll get into Act two. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this show is sponsored by JR Cigars, one of the world's largest online cigar stores. JR's inventory ranges from everyday bundled cigars to incredibly high-end boxes – plus a large selection of cigar accessories. Enjoy the best prices on your favorite brands, such as Romeo y Julieta, Monte Cristo, Crown Heads, Davidoff, and many more. Make sure to try one of their exclusive lines, such as the Drew Estate Nightshade, or the limited edition Cigar Dojo 10th Anniversary Champagne by Perdomo. Celebrate over 50 years of excellence and stock up on your favorite cigars, Today, this is episode 380 of Smoke Night Live. We are chatting with Marvin Samuel about his journey from the cigar biz into the uh, the world of Hollywood movies. Um, Marvin left off talking about how the fact that he had uh, started jotting down all of these stories that his mom and dad would talk about throughout their lives, the interesting characters and realize at that point, Marvin, that uh, maybe that this is something that should be captured on the silver screen. So how do you, Marvin, the first question in this next segment of the show is, how do you go, how do you essentially say, okay, I'm actually going to do this. I'm going to turn this into a movie. And, And one of the things that surprised me the most, Marvin, was not only did you produce this movie, you directed it and you wrote it, you did all three. It seems like, you know, maybe like, 
maybe like I would be able to produce a movie. Maybe I would be able to like write a outline of a movie. It would be very tough for me to direct a movie. That seems like a, you know, that you almost need some of the, um, you know, a history in it or some sort of, you know, background um, in it. When you were deciding, hey, I'm going to do this. Did you consider like, you know, having somebody else direct it or were you you know, wanting to direct it the whole time? Or how did how did you get from yeah. nowhere to somewhere all at once? I had no intention on directing the film. This so so let me backtrack. So now I've written these stories. I take a step back and I'm like, you know what? There's this there's there are characters here, but I didn't know I've never written a script, which is equally as difficult as directing or producing like writing a a, a, a a well laid out Hollywood script that can captivate an audience that's not easy and I learned the hard way because I, you know I guess I, I I after our success at Drew Estate I just had this like attitude like I could do anything I put my mind to so I said all right how hard could this be I go out, I buy copies of Goodwill Hunting, almost famous <laughs> terms of endearment. You know, some of my favorite films that are character-driven films. And I, in my office, I had like an FBI wall with pictures of all the actors <laughs> and like lines drawn out, how many characters. I'm like, you know what? I got completely stuck. This is impossible to do without i had never written anything other than some copy for our cigars um so i said you know what i need what in hollywood what they call a ghostwriter yeah and i went out on a journey to find a ghostwriter and after a number of months meeting some steedy characters at times <laughs> um some really shady shady motherfuckers um i end up introduced to a gentleman his name is rudy Gaines. And uh, he reads my stories, and Rudy had been a ghostwriter on an Academy Award-nominated uh, script, a film that he wrote. He he co-wrote the script, um, and he loved it. He joined, and we wrote the script together. Um, and I realized, like, you got to give credit where credit is due. He's on the poster. He's, you know, he gets full credit. He co-wrote the script with me. I didn't, I didn't care about ghostwriting, writing. Like, he did it with me. So Rudy and I wrote the script together, and now the next step was I need to find a producer. Now, at this point, I had moved from Miami. We were living in Coral Gables up to where I am now in Boca Raton. And I start carefully sharing my, my screenplay with me. You know, I, I, I did, I, of course, at that point, I had a dream to make the, a film, but it sounds completely nuts to say to someone, yeah, I'm going to make a film with no experience. So right. I kept it pretty, other than my closest friends, it was under wraps. And then I, I showed it to, I, you know, a friend of mine at my local cigar lounge. It used to be called Prime Cigar Lounge here in Boca. Um, he read it, my friend Yudi, and uh, he's like, I love the script. You need to meet my friend Dahlia Heyman. She reads it, loves it, comes on board as my producer. Dahlia's an Academy, Italian Academy Award recipient for Best Screenplay, and she's produced, I don't know, close to a dozen films. 
Um, and she's like, yeah, we're going to do this. And she's a filmmaker. And she brought on Alan Bain. Alan, as my executive producer, he's won the Sundance Film Festival Award, two time, Grand Jury Prize, two times, both with first-time directors. And uh, hold on a second. You guys can still hear me, right? Yep. Okay, good. And uh, now I have a team. And I was – so when I only had like 30, 40 pages, I had sent the script through a mutual friend. He had sent it without my permission to an Academy Award-winning director and writer. I can't say the name, but one of the, two of the biggest films in the 80s and 90s that you guys will all be like, holy cow, I can't repeat it. Steven Spielberg. And just kidding. Close <laughs> enough. He's he's worked he's worked he's worked very closely with Spielberg. Um and uh he the word came back, keep going. There's something there. So I was about to send my now completed script to him to direct. Mm-hmm. And my team calls me and says, Marvin, we fa- stop, don't send it to him. We found your director. Who? You. Mm. Get the fuck out of here. I've never <laughs> been on a film set before, and you want me to direct a feature motion picture? And their answer was, this is such a personal story that if you give it to this director, he's a studio director, and he might be interested, and the studio will then buy your film, and you go bye-bye. And your vision can be completely lost. So I go, wait a minute, I won't be in the editing room? And they just laughed at me. So now I'm like, oh my God, like, how do I do this? And I literally signed up for Masterclass. There's this like app you can sign up. And I just started taking classes with Martin Scorsese, Spike Lee, Werner Herzog, Ron Howard. Jodie Foster, Judd Apatow, and others. And I just like literally enveloped myself 10 hours a day, YouTube videos, you know, into directing. And at that point, we had brought on uh, A.V. Kaufman. She's podiumed more Oscar winners than anyone in history as our casting director. I meet with her. She loves the script. She goes, who do you want to play your father, the main character of the film, Mordecai? I said, you know what? I'm thinking Judd Hirsch. So he's like, you know what? She says she loved the choice. And we ended up sending it out to, uh, not sending, we ended up picking 10 actors, all people you've heard of, you know, famous actors. And he was my first choice. We send it out a week later. He wants to meet you. Okay. He wants to meet you at Nick's Pizza. It's on 93rd and 2nd on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So I fly up, I pay a kid off for the back room, and on a Sunday afternoon over a pepperoni pie and a couple of bottles of wine, we're talking. And now, hold on a second, let me relight. And uh, he's asking me my thoughts, my comments, I'm asking him. And after about an hour and a half, he cuts to the chase. So, who's directing this thing? (laughs) And he knows who is the proposed director. 
I am Judd. You? What have you directed? I've never been on a film set before, but I know these characters. I know their, their souls. And with your help and an incredible team around me, we're going to bring this to the, to the screen. So what do you say? And I put my hand out. And he's looking at me. He's looking at my hand. I'm looking at him. Nothing's happening. <laughs> yeah. So he, sits, so he sits down and he says, let me think about it. And you know, Eric and Jordan, I know we all, you've gotten to this stage in life and in your career, we all can look back at moments in life where sometimes it happens later on, but I knew right then and there, this is one of these moments in life where you just gotta, gotta go for it. And I said, look, Judd, this is a one-time offer. And he looked at me. I thought he was going to punch me in the face. <laughs> and he looks at me. That's and before amazing. he could, but before he could even react, I wasn't trying to be a dick. Right. Judd, my mother is dying. And four years ago, when I read her the script, I promised her that I would make this film while she was alive. And... You're my first choice, but you're not my only choice, Judd. So with all due respect, you know, are you in or are you out? And he looked at me for what felt like an eternity. Mm. And then he, he shook my hand. We sat back down. And his next question. So who do you have for fella? <laughs> my mother. Right. And I said, well, I knew you wouldn't take no for an answer. So I was going to ask you, what do you think of Carol Kane? Now, they had starred together in Taxi, the series from the 80s. In fact, right. they both won Emmy Awards for their roles. And he, he started smiling from ear to ear. And he goes, I love it. We had a movie to make. And we shot the film in uh, November and December of 2019. It, we got stuck with COVID and it took a while to finish. We finished the film in uh, May of 2021. And we were invited to be the opening film of the Miami Jewish Film Festival in January of 2022. We won the Audience Award Prize there. We won a number of other film festivals, the Prescott International Film Festival, uh, a bunch of others, and we brought it to the silver screen. We were in 80 theaters February and March of this year, and now we're out to the world. We're on Amazon, we're on Apple, we're on your cable channel. Anyone for five bucks can rent it and enjoy. Yeah, now, and that's, you know, that's the story, Marvin. Um, that's by the way, the movie's called I Mordecai. Um, like Marvin said, you can. I rented it last night on uh, Apple iTunes or uh, whatever they call it now, Jordan. What is it called? Apple what? Apple TV. Apple TV, yeah. Uh, I rented it on it. See, now all of a sudden I'm like your dad, Marvin. I'm, I'm literally the, the old guy that's having difficulty <laughs> with uh, new technology. But, uh, we, you know, like I think that there's a conversation that happens in every friend group all over the world. And people will say like, you know, if there was ever going to be a movie, like who would play you, you know, like who would, who would be the guy to play you? And you get into these, you know, 
hey, maybe Robert De Niro could play me. We you even know? do that on this show all the time. <laughs> yeah, like we do that kind of stuff all the time. Talk about, you know, picking, uh, casting yourself. That just seems like such a tricky thing. You, you, you know, you, you envision yourself as this super cool guy or you envision yourself as this funny guy. Or How did you come up with, you know, Sean playing the role? Obviously, uh, everybody loves Sean from, um, he was in, uh, just recently in, uh, Stranger, Stranger Things. Stranger Things. Lord Stranger Things, Rings. yeah. Uh, I mean, Lord of the Rings, obviously, but I mean, I was, I was thinking recently. Yeah. I was thinking recently there. Uh, but yeah, picking picking the actor to play to play you, Marvin, how did that come about? Sean's earnestness comes through in every single role he's ever played. You can see Sean Astin in the role. Of course, he's playing a character. But like when you look at one of his greatest roles, uh, he starred in Rudy. I don't know if right, you guys saw that right, one. Right. And, you know, I wanted heart and soul to come through. And also, the character of Marvin is not the main character and, in fact, plays the straight man to Mordecai. Right. And Sean has this great ability to just look at the world around him and in his roles he portrays. And, like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> and I just wanted someone who could play that earnestness you know someone going through the struggle because in the film and we you know if you want to go into the cigar portion i mean this is my diary as i was selling drew estate that's the film that you know that's what's going on from marvin's standpoint and marvin's character's standpoint and what i did was i captured the essence of where we were struggling you know, in an, in an earlier draft of the film, it was really just my diary. And, I, you know, we all, my team and I realized that, you know, what's Marvin got, what, what's at stake here? A rich guy getting richer? You know, the lo- second largest factory in the world? Like, what, what, what's the point? So I channeled when the struggle was real. I channeled when... You know, if a couple of things didn't go right at Drew Estate, right. the lights could have the lights could have been shut off, and that's the world that he was called upon to embody. And you know, he came on set, and he's watching me and my real my dad and I, the real Mordecai and I. My dad was on set every day, and he's watching the arguments. And he's watching my mannerisms. You know, I speak with my hands. I talk with my hands a little bit. You know what I'm saying? So, and he just ate it up like a sponge. So that's, and uh, yeah. Yeah, he's made, it was a great, made, made the right choice. Yeah, he was a great pick. Uh, I think one of the interesting things about the film is, okay, it's a, it's a charming, you know, character-driven show. Uh, there's It's emotional. But you also have to tackle some some more serious issues with your, you know, your father's history and some of the stories that he had growing up, obviously. Um, and you do that through, uh, these animated sort of vignettes that, that are sort yep. of, uh, throughout the film. Uh, I thought that was a really good way to, to tell the, that part of the story, um, and, and really kind of give you some in-depth stuff with, without having to, you know, do live action versions of that, or just, you know, seeing him thinking about it, like, we're, we're able to be thrown into those um, parts of his life 
in those cool animated uh, sort of portions of the movie. And and this is why, just like if you're a cigar maker, it ain't just you. It's your team. And in this case, Dahlia was pushing for this. And I was resisting because I said to myself, if my dad comes to see the movie about his life for the first time and it opens in animation, he's going to turn to me and say, what the fuck? You made cartoon for my goddamn life? <laughs> that, you know, he's in my head. And I, that was, but in the end, when COVID hit, look, I was planning on going back to tell those stories in live action. And we were planning on going to Jano Podlowski, Poland, on, on, in, in the eastern part of Poland. And I remember being on the phone with this guy, uh, Vladik. You know, Vladik, will you take uh, 600 for the three Soviet World War II tanks? You know, like we were literally ready to go. And then COVID hit. Mm. So the animation was out of necessity. And um, was out of necessity. And... Yeah, we, you know, I, I, the only way that I would ever have been convinced that we can do this in animation was I needed world-class animators. Nothing, there were no corners cut, and that's, that's part of the problem. It started as a low-budget film, but, you know, as a cigar maker, I never compromised, whether it's on the tobaccos we used, the care in in, in constructing the cigars, the packaging, the marketing, every aspect of what we did was first class. And I just, at, at, I've reached a point in my life where I just, I'm not good at low budget. So we had, you know, animators who worked on the triplets of Belleville, look it up. They won, they won the Academy Award for best animated feature. And a bunch of animators, you know, there were 80 people who were, animating and i refuse to do there's no computers it's all hand drawn and it's all at you know the same frame rate that you would find the disney film or a you know a, a, you know a a, a a large budget film and yeah i i can't tell you how much five minutes of animation ended up costing me but it was worth every penny because we were able to get the emotion of these hard flashback scenes of my dad's life right. and in doing that we were able to actually recover because the film at its heart is a comedy because that's my dad the the ethos of the film is comedy even though you know like when i tell yeah. people you know oh what, what kind of film is it oh it's a comedy about a holocaust survivor right you know what i'm saying like it's a, a strange way to to, to tell a movie but it's not unlike it's unlike anything you'll ever see. That, right, Matt, you know, Matt and, we got a uh, hold on, uh, Marvin. We got a, a question from the studio audience here, Matt. What do you got? Well, I was just gonna say I, I, maybe I thought too much into this, but I, when the animation first showed up, I was like, okay, this is interesting, kind of strange. But then when the painting aspect of your father came into it, I was like, oh, this is a deeper meaning. Like the the animation yeah. ties into his painting history, and it kind of brings Correct. it all together. Mm. I thought that was really cool. It's a good point. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you. We yeah, also that... have a uh, comment from this guy, Eric Espinosa. Huh. He wants you to tell the alligator story. Mm. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> man. First of all, Eric thinks he, he, 
you know, Eric's pissed at me because look, um, all of you at home, you're, you'll get to see, uh, there's a scene in which Marvin is smoking cigars with his competitors who all own other cigar companies. And he's asking them, is this cigar ready? And uh, Christian Rowe is in the film from CLE Cigars, formerly Camacho as well. Uh, Eric Espinosa is in, in, the, in the film. Jeff Borschwitz. Uh, Jeff Borschwitz is in the film. From, Abe. Uh, Abe. Yep. Abe DeBabna is in the film. And you guys are all friends with – you're friends with everyone there. Uh, Ryan Leeds, who owns Empire Social Cigars, is in there. So um, yeah, there's a, a lot of there's a cameo by a lot of uh, well-known cigar makers, some of right. the you know greatest greatest in, and uh, the the problem with that scene was, I I originally intended to have four hours to put that scene together, and we had some lighting issues, and we had literally thirty minutes to put it together, and <laughs> and understand that scene. I learned from Martin Scorsese the famous scene in Goodfellas where Joe Pesci's speaking to Ray Liotta and being like, what, what do you think, I'm, uh, I'm funny, I'm, I'm here to amuse you? That famous scene, all of that was ad-libbed, the whole scene. Basically, Scorsese had his mother cook up spaghetti and meatballs, and they had 12 hours to put that scene together where Scorsese said, this is where I want to start. And this is where I want to end. And that's what I did. I gave everyone just a one pager. This is what's going on. Marvin's in trouble right now. And he's coming to you guys to see if his cigar blend is ready. And we only had 30 minutes. And uh, yeah, I had to cut Eric out. <laughs> and he's still pissed at me to this day. <laughs> Jordan, don't we have a, do you have a picture of that? Do you have a picture of that? Yeah. Now, here's what I want to know, uh, Marvin. And when Eric was there, I yeah. I have a feeling that he had somehow probably devised some sort of game that you guys would play where he could he could try to beat all of you guys at something <laughs> like <laughs> tossing a penny. To the, who's the closest to the wall? Like who you know? He like won, Eric is listen, always like competing at something. Like he 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 had a deck of cigars in his pocket. He was ready to start <laughs> deal, dealing dealing poker yes. or blackjack one on one. You know, he tried to take. He, he he saw Sean Ass and he's like, "Oh, I could take him for all his money right now." <laughs> and what sucked, and this is the thing about filmmaking, we had four, we had four fucking hours to film that scene, and I had this vision of this scene, and then reality hits, and you got thirty minutes to put it together, mm -hmm. and while it didn't end up exactly what I wanted. It ended up being exactly what the film needed because that was a pivotal scene that led us to the rest of the film. So, um, yeah, that was a special moment to have my friends around me, mm. to be you know, a part of this, to witness me in action. Um, they were there for like five hours, you know, dealing with like as I'm dealing with, you know, I was directing the previous scene. You know, which is when Marvin smokes the cigar, when Netta brings the bundle of cigars from the factory over. That was the scene right beforehand. And they got to, <coughs> to witness me directing. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a moment that I'm very proud of. Doesn't she say in the film, uh, Pedro just delivered this bundle? So it's just Pedro delivered the bundle. Absolutely. Uh, that's, okay. that's my, my shout out. That, my that's man. my shout out to my boy, Pedro Gomez, <laughs> who I love like a brother. 
And uh, yes, I saw another sort of Easter egg. Maybe I'm off, but um, when uh, when your dad uh, paints the mural um, in the in the apartment, it looked to me like he painted the the Drew Estate Brooklyn Bridge painting there on the wall. Is that am I way off there? First of all, Eric, it's the fucking Manhattan Bridge. Sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry. (laughs) It's a bridge. What? Look, um, I would walk over that bridge when I when I didn't have enough money for a subway token. I lived on the Upper West Side. I had five, six guys living with me. I would literally leave the office one, two in the morning, and I would jog over that bridge and run home. That's how I started running because I literally sold my car. I sold my bicycle, my trumpet, anything that wasn't bolted to the floor. We sold to, to keep the lights on. And that bridge has a very special connotation to me. Um, so is there some reference to that? I mean, the logo is part of me and you know that bridge is part of me so that's yeah bit of i guess you could say it's a bit of an easter egg there you go um when it was when it was all <laughs> said and done and you got to watch the the final product what did your what did your dad think of it how did he react um so the first time he watched it uh we rented out a theater in, here in boca and uh credits roll and he looks at me he goes why didn't you tell the story of the bloody hand? <laughs> I go, Dad, I told your whole life story in an hour and 42 minutes. You should have told the goddamn story of the bloody hand. Dad, did you like the movie? Oh, no, it was, it was terrific. It was terrific. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's in, you know, look, he's a retired plumber and painter from Canarsie, Brooklyn, where Judd Hirsch played his life. And he's now 87 years old. He's coming over to the house for lunch tomorrow. Um, and what you'll see when you watch the film, you're really watching, you know, six to eight weeks as you, the audience, being a voyeur into the Samuel household. Life didn't end. It's still there. So literally there's direct lines from the film to what we're going to talk about at lunch tomorrow. I mean, this is my family that you will not find a film that's more personal, that's more uh, from like, you know, when, when I watch Steven Spielberg tell his, his life story, his biopic, uh, The Fablements, I mean, he was smart enough not to call it the Spielbergs. Yeah. He created some distance. I didn't have that forethought. And I, I literally laid out the essence and souls of my family and I onto the screen. So what next, Marvin? Uh, what's, what's your next endeavor? Now you've, you've, you've conquered the cigar industry. You've obviously dabbled uh, deeply into Hollywood. What do you got? What do you got on the, uh, what do you got on the plate coming up next? What do you, what, what next do you want to conquer? Well, it's uh, first of all, there's a writer strike going on now, so whatever is next is a little bit on hold. Right? You're now. a writer. You can write Return of the Mordecai or something. You know, like come, <laughs> come on. I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't like talking about things into the 
world, you know, into the universe, <laughs> unless I really feel solid. I'm, I'm, I am working on a script uh, with my producer, Dahlia. Uh, we're writing something together. Uh, very different than I, Mordecai. Uh, think about like fantastical realism in the vein of Field of Dreams or Big meets the mob. Mm, I like the sound of that. I'm a so, mob. I'm a yeah. mob fan myself. Yeah. So me too. And uh, and uh, the psychology of that individual and that group has always fascinated me. So uh, writing something on that, um, and then you know playing around, having some fun playing around. I got a blend here that I'm, uh, that I'm working on. Yeah, look, here, here's the thing, and, and I, I'm not going to bullshit anybody in the audience here and you guys. Doing, being a cigar maker is really hard. It's, you, you can't just play in cigars because you're going to get crushed. And when I think about the fact that I now have eight-year-old twin daughters who just finished the second grade today, and I think about if I go all in, you know, m when Mike Tyson made his comeback uh, against, uh, uh, what's his name, um, a few years ago, he fought uh, Roy Jones Jr. And he was, you know, he said, I was 270 pounds. I was sitting on this couch and I needed to do something. And for the first time in 15 years, I went to the gym and there's a video of it. And he just killed the heavy bag. And he goes, the ego was rekindled. I'm nervous to do that because I can't dabble in anything. It's either all in or nothing. And if I'm going to get back in, you know, when I look at my friends who used to work with me, for me, collaborated with, you know, so many of my friends are now doing their own things from Eric Espinosa to Steve Saka, who was my president, to Nicholas Melillo, who ran our factory, who now all have their own companies. And I'm so proud of all of them because what's the chances that you have that many people make it in this really tough industry, but they're all giving it their hearts and souls. Right. And if I, if I got back in, I can't fuck around. That means I'm literally saying bye-bye to my children's childhood. And so if I do something, it, it would be something charity driven, limited edition, just so that truthfully, I can, I can get to see old friends. This is an industry that I have deep passion for. Um, I really missed the guys. I really miss my competitors, the retailers, the consumers. Like I miss that aspect. But the truth is, what I learned after I sold your estate is I could enjoy smoking a cigar like all of you guys, no different than I did beforehand. So I don't know yet. I'm thinking, but I'm just not sure yet where my place in the cigar world lies. Um, but as, uh, as Arnold says, at some point, I'll be back. <laughs> uh, last one for you, Martin. Uh, Jordan, Jordan, we've talked about this all the time, like trying to uh, sync up like the cigar world with like the movie world. And we've talked about how like 
the producer is is sort of like the 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 guy who owns the company. The director is sort of like the blender. Maybe the actors are sort of like the tobacco. The final movie is sort of like the 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 cigar itself. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you kind of do you can can you get some sort of parallels with what you did making the movie with the cigar industry like that? There's so many parallels, Eric. Um, I could not have done what I did without my experience at Drew Estate. No possibility. Um, you know, yeah, cigars are a business. Everything's a business. Unfortunately, you can't just be passionate about something and not look at the bottom line. You know, we, we got to make a buck here. But cigars is the rare business where your passion leads you, not the, not the pocketbook. If your pocketbook is leading you, you're fucked. Because it happened to us a couple of times where we started like thinking about the dollars and the bean counters would get involved and say, well, if you sell $2 million a year of this and that. And it's like, no, the blend has to be right. The cigar has to be right. The messaging, the packaging. And it's just like a film where... You know, I, I don't know if I want to compare each stage to each stage, but just in its general comparison, you know, creating this is a story. It's a story. It's, it's, some could be a comedy, some could be a tragedy, you know, a drama, but I can tell you that looking back, I had some of the greatest times of my life being in the cigar industry and uh, I took so much of what I learned into every ounce of my heart and soul poured into the making of I'm Mordica. Well, I got to tell you, I was, uh, I was just really touched by the movie. I thought you did a fantastic job. Um, super well. We, po- it was a very, we going to show the trailer. We're going to show the trailer or anything or uh, do we have? Can I, we? Sh- while I'm no, talking, see if Jordan. Nobody sent me that. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's all right. I um, think that'd be kind of hard to get. But yeah, if if you um, like, I said before, look it up, folks. I'm Mordecai. I know we we made sure we I I posted the trailer a bunch of times this week on Dojo Verse, so people could awesome. Uh, awesome. could check it Good. out um, this week. Yeah, guys. We were- so everyone out there, this film, if you are a lover of the leaf. You're going to love this film. Um, it's a film that is about a Holocaust survivor living in the world today and his, you know, beat up 20 year old flip phone finally dies on him. And his son Marvin takes him to get an iPhone. And he starts taking lessons from this young girl that Mordecai and this young girl form this unlikely friendship. She teaches him how to use, you know, Apple Music, which reignites his passion for art, reignites the memories of his childhood before World War II. And he tells her the story of his life. And you, we all get to witness this. And while that's happening, you have his son Marvin, that's played by Sean Astin, who is struggling with his cigar company. And he has his blend that he's trying to, yep, and he's trying to come out with. And by the way, I'm surprised you guys didn't ask me. I I took so much poetic license in terms of 
how cigars are fermented and cured. You know, <laughs> we, could, we kind of we kind of figured. You know, yeah. you got You can't so, take, spend too much time on some of that stuff that you know regular uh, audience members would probably be wondering what the heck they're talking about. <laughs> correct, but but you you guys have a very uh, enlightened audience. So guys, don't hit me up and tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 curing of my cigars was bullshit because yeah it was bullshit in the film Marvin is waiting for his magical cigar to be ready and the cigars the tobacco in the cigars just isn't ready and he's running out of cash obviously that's bullshit that would never happen in real life the tobacco is is cured and fermented in pilones and you know not in the in, in the finished cigars. But uh, I took some poetic license there. I think it works. And you're going to get a taste of like, you know, there's really how many movies can you say uh, have a theme in it of cigars? I mean, there was some movie in the early 60s about the Connecticut Valley. Uh, Harvey Keitel made a movie in 96 called Smoke. I think and it was it wasn't about cigar making. It was about a guy in Brooklyn who's trying to sell some Cubans to make a buck. Um, good, good movie to watch, by the way. But if you're going to watch any movie about cigars, watch mine. It's, it's on, we're on Amazon. We're on Apple TV. We're on your cable box. And uh, yeah, hit me up on either uh, I'm Mordecai on Instagram or Marvin Samuel on Instagram. If you have any questions about the film, I promise I answer everyone's uh, you know, within a day, I'll get back to you guys. Fantastic. Ah, thank you, Marvin, so much for taking the time on a Friday night. By the way, I loved the, uh, I love that version, uh, The Crowded House, Don't Dream It's Over. That's how you ended the, the movie. It's one of my yeah. favorite songs. So, uh, yeah. perf- perfect, perfect song choice right then. Over a thousand, when I tell you, and that this is what I mean about like cigar, you know, I was listening to Saka. Uh, I was, I was listening to Saka a few weeks ago. He was on your show. And he was talking about how much he labors. He was laboring about the, the shade of green on his new cigar. Okay. The, the, uh, the one for you guys. What's it called? Yeah. The uh, Yugashi. Yugashi. And uh, I do expect uh, everyone that I mentioned that's a cigar <laughs> maker, I expect a royalty of boxes <laughs> to my office delivered. Anyways. Um, and it's like, you know, you, you talk about that Crowded House song that ends the film. I laid in probably 500 songs mm, just before we found, just to see. And that's one song. I mean, we have songs, you know, uh, 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 um, one of the top hits of, you know, so I had, you know, Jack Johnson yeah. has a song that's, that's, uh, that I used in the initial montage, which establishes the characters. And I was told... You got no shot to get him. I wrote him a letter. I, I edited the scene. I wrote Jack Johnson a letter explaining the film, how much this means to me. And I didn't hear back from him for six months. I'm like, all right. I started trying to lay in other songs and nothing was working. And finally, Jack Johnson and his family were on a private island with no phones for six months. He comes back. And I have a response from him. I still have the uh, the email that he sent me, how much he loved it, and he gave it to me at the the price range that I could afford. 
Um, you know, it's amazing. I had, I had, I had seven of John Williams's musicians on my score, the great Matt Kaczynski, my composer. I mean, I was sleeping over at Matt's house when all I had was a script talking about how we're going to attack the nuances of this, these, these characters in the score. I didn't know you don't do that shit. I've never made a film before. You know, a lot of the things that I didn't know actually ended up benefiting me. Mm, right. So, so being a cigar maker, that exactness that you guys out there demand, that carried over. I was relentless on every single frame. Um, my editor, the great Rick Grayson, he edited the bird. He was the completion editor of The Birdman. Oh, wow. The Road with, yeah, The Road with Viggo Mortensen and Charlize Theron. Uh, Gold with Matthew McConaughey, a couple of uh, Transformers movies. And we would literally, we spent, I spent almost a year editing, like tirelessly. Every single frame we edited together. There's not a frame in there. And everyone is different. Like Clint Eastwood would give, like, would basically have, say to his editors, all right, what do we got for today? And then he'd go shoot around the nine and come back and say, what do you have for me? I was very hands-on in every, maybe too hands-on in every aspect <laughs> of this because of how much this meant to me and just that attitude that I had at Drew Estate where I, you know, a product couldn't go out without us, you know, blessing every aspect of it. Right. All right, my man. Well, that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. This for, was great. Yeah, this Friday night. It was a ton of Thank fun. You. No, no, don't Thank go you, away. Eric. Thank you, don't, Jordan. Don't go away quite yet. We'll talk to you for just a, a little bit right after the show. But folks, Wednesday night, Flavor Odyssey's back. Uh, we, we're doing the uh, trends in cigar industry, trying to find perfect pairings for those trends. This week, we're going to tackle one that uh, is not exactly my favorite, but it's going to be fun anyways. We're going to be doing extra large ring gauge cigars, <clears throat> 16 plus. So grab yourself a, a big old uh, 60 or plus ring gauge cigar. Find a drink pairing that you think is best. And Robbie and Randy, and of course us here in Dojo Studios, we're going to try to find uh, pairings for those as well. It's going to be fun. Uh, next week on Smoke Night Live, a week from tonight, uh, Justin Andrews, and I, I, I hope I can pronounce this name right, Jordan. Cave uh, <laughs> Zamarian of Rabbit Hole uh, Whiskey. Uh, they'll both be on the show. Be talking about the new Diesel Project that they paired uh, the uh, with the new Rabbit Hole Rye. So we'll be doing that a week from tonight. It'll be a ton of fun. But as far as tonight goes, guys, get your DojoVerse.com app out. Check into your favorite cigars. Do some hashtag now playing. If you got a cool bourbon that you're drinking. Share that on there as well. We'll be having fun all night long on the Dojoverse as we do every single night, but especially on Friday nights for Friday Night Herf. Until next week, remember, never, never smoke, smoke alone. alone. We'll see you next week. Listen, kid, I've been in the industry for 33 years, and I've been smoking cigars for 50 years. I've had just about every brand ever made. What the heck am I smoking now here? This is the H. Upman 1844 Classic. Initially, I'm detecting tasting notes of coffee, black pepper, wood, and, and, and little hints of sweet cream. I'm getting some hot tamale, uh, uh, big ziti, pork chops on the grill, mashed potatoes with butter, flounder. Are we smoking the same cigar he is? Fossilized earth.
miniature pizzas that you put in the microwave. Are you, are you talking about bagel bites? Bagel bites. I'm getting some bagel bites out of this. Lasagna, cocoa puffs, portobello mushrooms, guava, banana pudding, salami, foot powder, an everything bagel.